I think we are ready to go, folks. And today we have another episode of The Conspiracy Farm. I am Jeffrey Wilson. I'm always sitting here chilling with my U- my co-host, UFC Hall of Famer, Pat Militich. What's up, boss? Well, good to be here, man. Happy, uh, happy as always to get to talk to my buddy, Jeffrey. Yes, absolutely. And today we're bringing a little bit more pain. Today, folks, we have on... Uh, he is a filmmaker, newsbreaker, as he is a correspondent on the online show called Buzzsaw. He can correct me if I have massacred that a little bit. He is the son of Oscar award-winning director Oliver Stone. This young man's been around the Holly weird for quite a while. He's actually been in several movies, if you didn't know. He was, I think, Gordon Gacko's... He was in he was in Wall Street as a little lad. He was, I think, a young Jim Morrison in The Doors, born on the 4th of July. A little bit of everything, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Sean Stone is here with us to chop up a few things. What's up, buddy? Hey, good morning. How are you doing? Ah, we're doing fantastic, man. Every day above ground's a good day. What's going on on the West Coast good. today for you, man? Uh, well, the West Coast is uh, another gray morning, so it's all right. <laughs> I'm, uh, it's not as bad as it's not as cold as New York was. I can't believe how it's like it's May gloom just continuing. Yeah, continuing well, spring has finally sprung around this way, thank goodness. Um, well, I don't want to keep you too long because I know you have uh, you know a little bit of an out here in a little bit. You got somewhere to go. So speaking about some of the movies, man, that you've not just been in. I mean, you've obviously, uh, like I said, been in Hollywood for a while and seen that whole scene and kind of stepped out and done your own bit of a little bit of motion picture making. Um, we're going to talk a little bit of some heavier stuff and then get into your most recent film, PASS, Paranormal Security Squad. Um, so before that, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things going on in the world today right now. It seems to be a little bit on fire. Um, and a movie you did not too long ago really is still applicable and relevant today. It was called Dangerous Dynasty. If you don't mind, br- break off a little synopsis on what Dan- Dangerous Dynasty was all about. Ah, that's a good one. Um, it's actually a short documentary that was done for the W behind the scenes. W being the film my dad did about uh, George W. Bush. Right, so that was dangerous. Dynasty was done as a behind the scenes featurette, and that, uh, if I recall, dealt with the Bush dynasty, uh, father and son, in terms of some of their abuses of power, whether it was you know Bush Senior's invasion of Panama uh, to the, the son's illegal invasion of Iraq, and then obviously getting more into um, I think some of the impeachable issues around Bush Junior, uh, having to do with uh, surveillance and. Um, yeah, I mean, because obviously the NSA warrantless surveillance started under him, mm-hmm. and then uh, other factors. I mean, it's been a few years since since I since I did the film. Obviously, it's been almost eight years now. But yeah, remind me which topics in particular you know are interesting interested you. Well, I, it, honestly, the reason I say it kind of parallels today because you almost can't talk about the Bushes anymore, and this kind of makes – it requires people to have to kind of go back and understand history. You can't really talk about the Bushes without really talking about the Clintons because they are quite – not literally, but are quite married as a power family throughout the last 30 years dating back to – I mean, I'll just make it you know a little bit more contemporary – the Iran-Contra stuff relating to Bill Clinton and the funnel of cocaine – through, through Arkansas, yeah. and obviously the Bushes were very integral in that. Yes, yes. I mean, Bush Sr. was probably the guy running the operation domestically uh, when he was vice president, and uh, and Clinton certainly was, as governor of Arkansas, knew about the traffic of cocaine going through there, Barry Seal being one of the most prominent pilots yes. that ultimately uh, was divulged. Um, so, yeah, obviously their, their relationship 
may have begun at that time, it's very clear that they have a friendship that does carry beyond the presidency. And that obviously always begs questions of why this friendship between these two people who are supposed to be so different, and yet ultimately both CFR members, right. uh, Bush is Gullen Bone, but Clinton is Rhodes Scholar. So they're both basically Anglophiles, um, probably have very similar views of the New World Order agenda. Right, yeah. two different sides of the same coin. Go ahead, Pat. Were you going to say something, Pat? No, I, I was just going to say it. You know, as, as we remind, what's that? Oh, hello. Was, no, no, yeah. I got you. You were scratching up a little bit there, though. Sorry. Uh, go ahead and edit it. Anyway, um, Sean, we, you know, as we rewind in the Clinton years and tying this into the Bush years, and then you hear a lot of people nowadays going completely off their rocker about the abuses of power, executive action, things like that with Barack Obama, it's, it started long before, obviously, with Clinton, with the Bushes, with everybody else. But I think that wouldn't you agree that, that Obama now has taken it maybe even a step further in, in abuses of power with executive action? Well, I, I, I did a video we aired on Alex Jones in 2012. Was it 20, 2012? Yes, called Impeach Obama. And that was like, rather than re-elect him in 2012, you should impeach him in 2012. Um, <laughs> because he had to be held accountable for the fact that, yes, I, I obviously would have advocated for impeaching Bush on certain actions as well. But with Obama, when he took it to the level of assassinating American citizens yes. and the NDAA of 2012 saying we can illegally, illegally detain American citizens um, on top of his illegal war in Libya and then obviously continuing that war into Sy against Syria. Um, it's like enough is enough. We have to stop this insane, uh, these insane, insane policies of the executive branch. And you have to, you know, even if it's not about Obama personally, whether or not you like him or not, it doesn't matter. You have to put a right. check on the executive branch and its powers. And the only way to do that is to impeach, impeach him. Well, in, and, in you know, case, even if it doesn't go through, you still need to at least make the action to get to a, reassert, you know, American, uh, the public sort of engagement. You know, we impeached Nixon over much smaller. Yeah, Nixon was impeached over much smaller crimes. Right. I mean, it was a break-in to a, you know, to a Democratic convention that was really had nothing to do with the American public. There were certain things that he was doing that came out as far as the Houston plan, creating his own little group of um, uh you know, plumbers and basically his own little uh, intelligence branch just mm. directly under him. That was that was an abuse of power. Other things that he did that were you know that were really small potatoes in comparison to what's going on now. Yeah. And yet he was impeached over this. Right. So obviously the mainstream establishment wanted to see Nixon go, and they don't want to see this executive taken down yet. That's why we haven't seen impeachment. And would you say that? I mean, with with the media, the way they're the lapdog basically of of our politicians nowadays. I mean, it looks like they're protecting the establishment GOP, um, Clinton, um, Hillary Clinton anyway. It, it's, yeah. it's really scary to see how tightly knit the media is being, being the guards of the gates for the politicians nowadays that it's almost impossible anymore for citizens to even make a difference in any of this stuff. It feels that way. It certainly feels that way. Um, and it's, and I really wonder, you know, when it comes to like these elections and whatnot, because it's such a circus. And I just wonder why people even, why do even they engage with it at this point? There's nothing to engage with. You're better off engaging at the local level, at the, at the congressional level. Um, you know, you see some of these third and fourth parties, and I'm like, we need to put those people, the independents, into office in Congress and the Senate. Yeah. That's the only way to really check the system, it, because it's got to come from those 
that branch, it's not going to come from the executive. You're not going to win yeah. the executive of the third, fourth, fifth party. Forget it. Right, right. Now, listening to you talk, are you a Ron Paul, Rand Paul guy? I, I mean, I like, I like, certainly like them both. Um, I know a little less about Rand Paul since he's been in in the was he in Congress now or in the Senate? He's in the Senate, right? Senate, yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I know a bit less about him since he's been in the Senate. He has proposed some certain things I supported, but certainly his father, Ron, uh, you know, I admired what he was talking about when he was running. Um, I'm sure he got that 3 a.m. knock on the door. And, um, you know, now he's, now he's doing things that are good as far as, you know, on, on the television and, and the media stations, he's still pushing these certain ideas. Um, and I hope his son is, you know, is, is the same kind of genuine person that his father was. Um, but as far as you know, supporting anyone at the end of the day, it's like, it's got to come through your Congress and your Senate. That's where, that's where these guys can take action. Cause you know, we're seeing this in the presidential left side you have no voice when it comes to the presidency. It's, it's completely controlled. I mean, you want to say Trump is really uh, an anti-establishment figure? If he is, he, there will be a real real problem when he, if he gets elected because the establishment will freak out. I personally think he is too embedded inside. That's where he comes from is the establishment. I mean, he's, he's, Mr., you know, he's Mr. New York, right? I mean, he's a huge he's a money guy. So I don't see him as being really an anti-establishment as he may sound when he does these conversations. He has these right, and if he, if he would even... Yeah, and if he were to even try and follow through with any of the stuff that he's threatening or saying that he's going to do, I mean, as an advisor, I'd tell him, look, dude, do not leave the White House because you're going to get shot. No, I, I tell him, you know, choose like Jesse Ventura as your vice president or someone like that because that way no one's going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. No, but going back to the media, you, we uh, I've got a lot of friends in, in Hollywood. I've got a lot of friends in the movie industry, TV industry, and, and – you know, for years I was telling them the media is completely controlling everything that, that the Americans are thinking. They're pushing the, the liberal agenda, the you know, the socialism and, and all these things, and they're like, Oh, that's garbage. Don't even that's don't even come at me with that. And now those are the exact same people that are freaking out when Bernie Sanders is winning the popular vote in a state and then losing the delegates to Hillary and the media is not covering it in their minds fairly. And I go, look, dude, I, I told you. I told you. And now you're finally listening. But, Sean, are you familiar with Operation Mockingbird? Yeah, yeah the infiltration of the media by the CIA. Yeah, yeah. We've talked about that in our first episode, how they, you know, pretty much the establishment or whatever you want to call it, the CIA, Defense Intelligence, whatever you want to call it, they control the narrative and then thusly control our perception of what's going on. So that's another part of it, too. Sure. You know, the congressmen, grassroots legislators definitely need to change up their game, but you know, we also need to have some kind of, I guess what we're doing here, some level of independent alternative media so people can really start getting real information and not some controlled Kool-Aid narrative being provided by, you know, like you said, the Central Intelligence Agency. Well, they, they you know, they learned a lot from the Nazis, obviously. The, um, you know, frankly, you could argue that the Nazis were put in place by the British and the Americans, right, financially. But then when it right. came to bringing the Nazis' apparatus, into America, Project we adopted that entire, yeah, the, we, but we adopted the entire superstructure of how to organize a state, and you do it through public relations or world worldview warfare, yeah. right, and different ways of manipulating the, psych, the psychology of people. So, you know, what we're seeing is basically a, a like a sort of a warped socialist fascist takeover from the top down, but it's not it's done in a much more gradual, slower process because. The Nazis screwed up because they did everything so fast, right. and they created so many wars that they ultimately 
you know, they couldn't sustain it. If they, if, maybe if they'd gone east and just fought the Russians, uh, Britain might have let them off the hook and, and been happy. But ultimately, they fought, they overextended themselves militarily, and uh, they for, basically forced their own downfall. The U.S. is trying to do things where I think we might be overextended militarily, but everything they're doing domestically is to placate us and make us not even realize that we're at war. To make us real, like not even think about the fact that we're in a we're at war on a daily basis. It's nearly yeah. 1984. The handbook is right there because every day we're at war with a different, a different entity, a different country. Yesterday it was Russia. Today it's Al Qaeda. Tomorrow it's ISIS. The next day it's Iran. The next day it's it's North Korea. I mean, you will never. But the whole point is you don't know. You don't know who you're fighting. You don't know for what. And that's how they want the population to, to think because we're not thinking about the consequence of the war. We're not seeing the dead bodies. Right. We're so detached. From the consequence of it all, that we're in a permanent state of warfare and a permanent state of, of war on our own people, actually. Cause, but it's just done like a slow boil of the frog as opposed to heating it up really quickly and making everyone scream. So that's what you had with the 2008 collapse was like a moment of, wow, we're all being screwed by the system and it's actually in free fall and there's no stability. Then they just kind of they placate us with a little bit of money and, you know, money flowing into the system to get the debts going again, to get a few people hired. But really, I think in terms of actual employment and actual wages and actual real uh, income, we're probably at the worst. We could be at the worst point in our history, actually, as a country. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we had an economist, Peter. We had an economist, Peter Schiff, the other day, and he pretty much echoed those sentiments as far as our economy and, and, you know, the dire nature that it's in. So what I would say, Sean, do you think my belief is that we draw these battle lines along BRIC nations versus central bankers? And, you know, the BRIC nations being being Brazil, China, Russia and some of the other nations that are trading with them against the central bankers, those who don't fall in line with the central bankers. uh, Basically, the, the dictators get overthrown, killed, whatever. And and we're dealing with with now potential war with Russia because. Putin's fighting the central bankers. He wants to be part of the BRIC nations. They're setting up their own their own banking system, things like that. That's the way I see it anyway. How about you? That's certainly, I think, um, the most obvious dimension of it. There might be, I think there might always be a higher dimension of internal, what I call like secret society politics. Right. <laughs> and that's like, right. that's the domain that gets into the esoteric and gets into the invisible realms even. Yes. Of power, of spiritual power and whatnot, and religious spiritual power. But as far as what we're seeing, yeah, the reason why I believe Putin is being re- regarded as like the biggest villain since uh, you know Blofeld or Doctor No or something is that uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean he's, he really is he's being depicted that way. Yeah. And one thing I like about Trump is that Trump is actually saying, look, I like you know I like Putin, I respect him, I like the Russians. Um, we it has to do with the BRICS nation, I do believe. And there has been this economic war against Russia going back to the end of, well, really from the 80s into the 90s, right? And uh, trying to, as much as possible, get get the Western banks into Russia's economy. I think Putin did a reversal of that whole maneuver and basically reasserted Russian supremacy in a way that they deserve. I mean, historically, they're 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 an ancient empire slash country. Um, they, they have, you know, certain... They want to protect their borders. They've never been a very overtly aggressive country, frankly. They've always been fighting wars on their borders to protect their own sovereignty. So I think that's really what Putin is just asserting. And he's saying, look, we're just one of the, we're the biggest nation ter- territorially in the world. We have one of the major economies in the world and land and resources and everything. 
we want to be respected as such. And our military, obviously, is is probably only second to the U.S., but nuclear nuclear weapons-wise is probably just as good as America. So why mess with the Russians? <laughs> like, why keep pissing them off? Why, why provoke them with our, you know, in, incursions with NATO into Eastern Europe, into Ukraine, uh, on their border in Syria? All you're doing is irritating the Russians. So it, it does seem to be having to do with this banking issue and the lack of Western uh, banks control of the Russian economy, um, you know, through the IMF, through the World Bank and whatnot. Well, then the Russia definitely threw a curveball a couple of years ago when they started trading their oil. They're, them and the Chinese started trading their oil in the Chinese, uh, I think it's called the Chuan or something like that, which is which was a huge, yeah. huge thing. You have two, basically the hugest superpowers along with the United States, now moving away from the U.S. petrodollar and trading their stuff in, in Chinese dollars. And then, of course, last week or a couple of weeks ago, Chinese move of you know bringing so much gold into play in their economy. Like, that's a... You know, kind of a silent weapon for silent wars kind of thing. No shots fired, but definitely declaring war from an economic standpoint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when it comes to economic war, you know, I, I'm definitely not as, um, I say, I'm not as educated in, the, you know, the nature of how like finance really works. Sure. Obviously, there's there's sort of like the play version, of, which is, oh, you get money, and then you, you know, the money depending on. Uh, demand, you know, the prices rise or fall, and then you can make money. But that's all that's right. all nonsense. I mean, it's not really how things work. It's all sure. to do with federal Federal Reserve systems con- controlling the money in the first place, private banks owning the Federal Reserve, or you know, central banks, and then as much as possible, I think, utilizing uh, oftentimes media and conflict to actually move money around the board, in a sense, to move their, yeah, money, and their money. What's interesting, like monopoly, you know, and have you? Sean, have you heard the phone call, the intercepted phone call, I believe the, the Russians picked it up, where Victoria Nuland, who was Assistant Secretary of State at the time, was having a phone call with a guy from the Council of Foreign Relations, and they were deciding on, after after the bankers tried their takeover of the Ukraine, and, uh, oh, yeah. and the Victoria Nuland is, is caught on tape, and the only thing the that the media played was, was her saying, fuck the EU, was, you know, in, in quotes. But it was that phone call in its entirety was her conversation with a gentleman from the Council on Foreign Relations where they were deciding who would be the new unelected president or leader of the Ukraine. And they were deciding uh, between uh, <laughs> be- between Yad, who's uh, he was a former central banker and uh, and the heavy Klitschko, the heavyweight boxer. And they said they said Klitschko just needs to be, you know, crowd control and that. Uh, Yad, I don't remember his entire name. They called him Yad for short, who was a former central banker, of course, is who the guy they, they put in place um, until they could have their, their puppet uh, garbage bullshit elections over there. So I think that's well, the question. Exactly. Did you hear that intercepted that was, phone call? I don't, I don't recall hearing one in particular. I remember hearing about it from Newland, obviously, and this whole, yeah, that's the nature of how these things work. I mean, yeah. it, it, it has to do with overthrowing, you know, governments. And doing it in different capacities. One way of doing it is, right, as we did with Iraq. At that, to this day, we don't really know entirely what that was about, right? To this day, we don't really entirely understand why it was so necessary to go in there and invade Iraq, as far as from a uh, from a, a control of territory, oil. They try to balkanize the country. What, what was the long term strategy of that? I mean, a nice you know, combination of all of them. Yeah, and ironically, I mean, ironically, but, Saddam Hussein right. got approval. From the UN to get take EUs for his oil, <laughs> which 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 the powers at B didn't like. 
Well, before the, even the whole Gulf right. War, they were like, they gave him carte blanche to go into Kuwait. And then after he's like, oh, okay, you guys said I can go in. Then they're like, oh, the evil Saddam went in and took Kuwait shit. It's like, you guys gave him permission. First, you put him in there in the first place. And, you know, it, it, it's all, you know, like they say in JFK, it's yeah. fun games, man. It's funny games. Everybody's flipping sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, part of the argument for the first Iraq war was, well, we sold him all these weapons. Now you have to get rid of them. <laughs> so you had to encourage him to fight somebody that you could actually get behind, that was Kuwait. You know, first you sold them all the weapons to, throughout the 80s to fight the Iranians, right? So it's like they can bleed each other dry and you make money selling to both sides. But after Iraq had this tremendous weapons buildup, military buildup, the idea was, okay, now we're going to take those away from you via the first Gulf War. When he and was then, trying to do what kind of Libya was doing in Qaddafi, trying to, like, nationalize his oil. Well, I, I suppose, I suppose. I mean, across the board, Saddam was a nasty guy, but you have to recognize sure. at least that, in he terms of the context guy. of the Middle East, it was a stable. It was a stable country, where it was. Contained, I mean, I guess you could call it socialist or whatnot. But people, women and men, both had an opportunity to be, be educated. There was a way of checking the uh, the, sectar the sectarian violence. There wasn't really sectarian violence between the various Shia and Sunni and other sects in Iraq. Um, there was a semblance of stability in the country, and. I think the whole 2003, or let's say post-2001 era, has been about balkanizing and destroying the stability of the Middle East. Yes. And whether or not that goes back to the Israeli plan, which was called the Oded Yunon plan of the 1980s, which had to do with balkanizing the Arab, the Arab countries around Israel, um, that might have been that might have fed part into our plans. Our neoconservatives, obviously, are if not Israelis themselves in passport, but certainly oftentimes pro, very strong pro-Israel sentiments. So when they went to balkanize all these countries, you know, with it starting with Iraq and then moving from there, um, obviously doing your drone wars against Somalia, uh, cutting Sudan in half, uh, invading Libya. Yeah, we haven't even really started talking about Africa yet because I know, I know you know who Webster, Webster Tarpley is. He said in 08, in the next 10, 15, 20 years, people start looking at Africa. It's a big you know, game or it's a big fight. It's essentially us, the Russian, and the Chinese for the natural resources in Africa. And I think that's kind of why we've been hearing so much more about stuff in Libya, Boko Haram, Chad, Sudan. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, Africa's always been there as far as a resource that has been fought over. Uh, it's been extremely, unfortunately, tragically ignored, frankly. I mean, in the 90s, you had the Congo War that probably cost two to three million lives, right? And no one, no one said a thing, right? The Rwanda situation got out of hand and millions of people died as a result in what was called the genocide. But really, it seems to have been this whole operation that was being run by the United States and various people who were, were pushing this, the civil war to begin in the first place. And that's all again on the border of Congo, right? So the entire Congo war was called this, the World War of Africa. No one, no one talked about it in the media. There was occasional articles in the LA Times, and, but that right. was it. So here, these massacres of millions of people going on in Africa, and everyone's silent. And all of a sudden, what you have to do is, okay, well, if you, how do you say, it? the Middle East is a great gateway because it's a gateway to everything. You see, if you want to go after Russia, if you want to go to China, yeah. if you want to go to Europe, if you want to go to Africa, what's the center? The Middle East. So in order to start this whole war that we're in now, which is really like a World War Three in a sense, mm -hmm. you have to start with the Middle East and start with the conflict, with, with using this, this divide of class of civilizations concept that was derived from Harvard people like Bernard Lewis and uh, Brzezinski, uh, not, uh, well, Sam Huntington, really, Brzezinski as well, right? Yeah. And let's create this 
clash of civilizations, which is nonsense. I mean, you're talking about, you're talking about first of all, countries. You're talking about civilizations that are not even necessarily allied. I mean, the Persians are Muslims, but they have nothing to do with the Arab world in a sense. Right. <laughs> you know, the Arab Persians and the Muslims. There's, you know, there's a there's a a Muslim from Lebanon or from Jordan is totally different, or Turkey is totally different from Muslim from North Africa. Absolutely. I mean, it's just like you're you're dealing with so many different types of people, and we had to we had to mesh it all across the line just to say, okay, there's the Muslims against us. That's like the first basic breakdown, and from there, you know, you get into these, these endless wars now, where they try to constantly sell it as a clash, yes. you know, against different civilizations or cultures. But it's just not that. It's actually a political economic war. Right. And, well, and I tell you, man, you control. Well, you you did, and I just saw this literally a week ago. A friend sent me an interview with a gentleman by the name of Peter Lavenda, which I watched, and then I saw your interview with Peter Lavenda. Ladies and gentlemen, I implore you take, and I sent it to you too, Pat. Please watch this. The first one yeah. was like two hours. The one with Sean's about an hour and some change. Please watch this because I'm a big uber nerd on JFK, and they go deep into it. But they start talking about they go deep into it in a way it gets into like what Sean's saying, some esoteric stuff that I had no idea. And as it relates to the Middle East, that like they were talking about, so very fascinating. This whole thing goes back to World War One, yeah, the Great Mufti, and I mean this is this is such a huge rabbit hole that modern kids today don't even. Think about it, because 9-11 changed the whole script. The psychological impact of 9-11 made us just completely pissed and at war with Islam. And in the interview, uh, Sean, the gentleman you spoke to, Peter Lavenda, he, the gentleman he said who came up with the, the notion of global jihad wasn't even Muslims. It was like a, a German person. Was that? Am I correct? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, again, jihad, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a technical word for, for war, right, for waging war. Um you know, the, or war for God. I mean, the funny thing is that everyone fights wars, right? I mean, that's the, that's, that's the basic element of man, is to fight. And whether or not you're fighting for your land, for money, as a, you know, for profit, you're fighting, you know, for whatever it may be, we all fought wars. So this whole notion of, you know, jihad, already it's like, it's, it's silly because it forgets the fact that we're also fighting wars. What's our motivation? Is it, you know, is it, to, is it for our country? That's a jihad for your country. What does that does that make you be, more you know better than someone who's fighting a jihad for their spiritual belief? I'm not you know again I'm not promoting like you know jihadists or killing innocent people, but the whole point is that everyone everything is about war, and in Islam, first of all, you can't even say that the people that are killing that are killing the Muslims whether it's not they're Muslims some of them could frankly be false flags, but any Muslim who's killing civilians is not a Muslim because the Quran is so specific that war is, is fought in certain ways and it's not. You would not have to target women and children. I and mean, that's just completely, that, that, that ends your role as a Muslim at that point. Right, so people, so, so, even, so Muslims get really their... Fundamentalist Islam. Yeah, the, fun, <laughs> the, do with Islam. The, fun, the fundamentalists pull it from a different book, if I'm not mistaken. And, and I think that they follow more... Well, I don't even call it fundamentalists. Of, of you know, I, I would just say Muhammad's they're word. radical, but they're radical, but it's not even fundamentalists. I mean, the Wahhabis aren't fundamentalists. They're crazy, but I don't even know that the Wahhabism could be called Islam. Do you understand? Like, because they, they just take their own interpretation. So at that point, you know, ISIS, Wahhabism, you know, these guys aren't even fundamentalists. They're just they're just radical. So you, there is the there is a side of Islam that is that has been um, Masonicized, let's call it, that's been taken right. over by the secret societies, and that's the the Brotherhood. 
the Muslim Brotherhood. That's a very important thing to look at. If you want to understand what's going on in the Middle East, you've got to look at Robert Dreyfus's books. Um, there's, a few, there's only a few people that have really touched into this. And it's about how the Muslim Brotherhood, which was really co-opted by the British and also uh, utilized as a bastion for fascism in the Middle East. And I think Webster Tarpey also talks about this. But the Brotherhood is the key to understanding how these operations were run against every state. Because during the Cold War, you had people like Nasser, who were socialists. And um, they were basically working to promote uh, national programs for their country, like Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. And these guys were being targeted by the Brotherhood because the Brotherhood wanted to make it more of a so-called Islamic uh, way of life. And it, again, it was just using the radical side of Islam to, dis to destroy and destabilize the societies that they were in. And, and this whole Brotherhood program... Yes, this was, no, no, to overthrow Nasser. I'm sorry, over... Oh, and they, right. killed, they, they, killed, they killed Sadat. They, they you uh, know, yes, the Brotherhood... Okay. The Brotherhood is where, is where Bin Laden's ideology comes from. The Brotherhood... Uh, support, supported originally, uh, was very close to the Saudis, to this day probably close to the Saudis. The Brotherhood obviously came into prominence recently in Egypt when they took over the country after the Mubarak's overthrow. Yes. You see, and, so the, and the, and the Brotherhood's intertwined in a lot of our, our, a lot of our departments in, in this administration, including Homeland Security, correct? Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so the whole point is, but, but the Brotherhood, again, it's like, that's masonry. That's like, that's, that's the secret society level. It's not, you know, they're, you know, the, it's already indicated in the name, Muslim Brotherhood. <laughs> you know, anyone who understands how secret societies work understands, okay, you're talking about particular organization and it's transnational. It has nothing to do with, you know, from being from the Muslim world or whatnot. It's something that was literally co-opted and if not from its origination by um, the inner circles within British intelligence. Because British intelligence and the British really run, run the global game. You know, if you know how things how things operate, you have to look at this. This entire map of the Middle East was created by the British. That's where the, the uh, and that's the where the banking system states. originates for the globe and everything else. Sure, exactly. I mean, the British Empire is key to a lot of what the New World Order is about, if not the entire New World Order being a British plot. So, of course, the British not being really British, aren't they really a German tribe? Saxe Coburg Goethe isn't that their original name, as opposed to being a well, British lineage. Well, look, look, there's very few like actual, um, what is the term? Uh, the people, well, the, the Angle, well, yeah, I mean, they, look, the Anglo-Saxon itself is the Angles who invaded from Germany, right? Mm -hmm. Saxons, I think, may have come from, from England. Mm -hmm. So there are certain Scots and certain, certain tribes that were in England, but these people have been conquered since the days of Rome. So if you think about how the Roman bloodlines mingled in England, yeah, you know, going back to that time period, to the invasions of the French, the Normans and Norman invasions, the invade, you know, and, and the various invasions invasions from the north, and uh, from you know from the northern countries as well, like Norway, Sweden, but not. So the entire nature, and obviously yes, the queen herself being a, a German queen. So the entire nature of England is a melting pot of these various tribes. Mm -hmm. So who are you know who are the British? Aren't they you know aren't they just a, a hodgepodge of various dominating races coming together on this island, and then from there they set off onto this world empire. But the entire nature of the world empire was esoteric, because John Dee, who's running the who's run, who's working with Queen Elizabeth, you know, is doing magical spells and whatnot, <laughs> so they can win the war against the Spanish in the first place. Mm -hmm. That was his whole John Dee's whole thing. He was 007, right? He was doing the uh, the magical rituals and spells uh, and conjurings, and he he claimed, you know, he basically. 
I don't know if he personally claimed it, but it was alleged that his his spells were what created this, the uh, sinking of the Spanish Armada by the storm uh, in 1588. Right, right. So the whole thing was that it was from the beginning there was a lot of um, magic, and that's what Shakespeare is getting at in his plays. By the way, the Tempest is actually about John Dee, and hmm. um, other other elements within Shakespeare's plays hint at the esoteric nature. I mean, even obviously uh, Hamlet has the esoteric, but Macbeth in particular. Well, this is something that's fire. often so overlooked, Sean. <clears throat> we don't have you for too much longer because I definitely want to get into plug your movie before we before we wrap here. There, th this is something that's so overlooked. People get so caught up in the surface level of this war on terror, war on drugs, you know, just political agendas, foreign policy. When oftentimes, man, if you do your homework, there is such a huge esoteric element to all of this. I mean, not to not to get into yeah. you know masons and all that, templars and all that shit, but it's like you know the layout of DC. You know, there's there, there's there's so much to all of this. You know, geometry, mathematics, alchemy, like you talk talked about in your, your interview with Peter Lavenda, it goes so deep, gang, and it's just, it's really incumbent on us to really fuck CNN, fuck MSN, you know, you have to get deeper into this rabbit hole, otherwise, you really become part of the problem, and really just like a, a zombie in this whole, in well, this and, whole and, system. And Je yeah, Jeff, and me being a Freemason, I mean, I'd, I'd have to, I'd tell you guys about it, but then I'd have to kill you. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, <laughs> Pat, you're a Mason, I don't think you're a part of any... Yeah, but I mean, I no, but look, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Mason too. I don't, I don't say the Masonic thing as though it's a bad thing. I don't, I'm not trying to say like, oh, Masons are bad. I'm not one of these guys that goes up there. <laughs> look, I don't, <laughs> think the, I don't think, the, I don't even think the Illuminati is all bad. I think that the point is that we're talking about a dimension that just goes over the head of those who are not initiated. Well, like I and told, so I told it's Pat, it's the Force. It's either you use it for Jedi shit or right. Sith shit. That's really what it's about. Exactly, that. and that's what that's what the, even the Illuminati. The Illuminati is always like, oh, the Illuminati is doing this and that, and they're all evil. It's like, how do you know they're all evil? Right. You know, you assume you assume because things might not be what you like in the world, or you might think that there are bad things that it must only be bad guys that are running it. And but the, yeah, and, a lot of and those and, and those in not, power. You're not looking at. <laughs> Right. Those in right. If if we think about it, those in power, uh, no matter what you want to label them, Illuminati or whatever, what does the world look like if the American dollar is not the world trade currency? And what what if right. if China does take over or other nations? I mean, if 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 Saudi Arabia or Iran were the most powerful country on earth, what would the world look like right now? Right. Exactly. So, I mean, there, there's 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 a there's a yeah. balance. To be to be found, right? And the point is that yes, the 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 ones in power do a lot of very evil, nefarious things that I personally don't think need to be done. I think there are different ways of doing it. You could take your military-industrial complex and shift it into a, a you know peacetime industries, work on development programs, and use mm -hmm. what FDR wanted to do, which was let's export the New Deal to the third world. Let's work with the, the Chinese and the Russians. And, and England if they want to, but I don't trust the British, frankly. <laughs> I would go with the Chinese and Russians and work on a development program for the planet. And you work to advance technology because that's the way of uplifting people. And I think there are definitely a lot of elites who don't want to see the people empowered in that way. And that's they don't exactly want to see right. technology in the hands of the people. But that's right. not an Illuminati thing. Right. <laughs> that's, just, that's just being, you know, that's just using your, your power and coveting power for your own self as opposed to want to enable and empower others. Well, even like Lavenda said in your in your interview and and Mr. X, you know Fletcher Prouty and JFK, you know the organ organizing principle of most any state, like you said, dating back to the history of man, is war. And when you enter this economic part of it, you know states, you know central banks profiting so much from war, it just seems like a perpetual thing. And my thing is, dude, and I've always thought, 
until we start seeing the human from the top down, until we start seeing the humanity in all of us, it's going to be, you know, we're going to find it easier to pull the trigger on people. You know what I mean? I know that sounds like a little, you know, maybe some, some hippie bullshit, but it's just like we got to start recognizing the common bond between us and not letting these racial, ethnic, religious shit separate us. But, um, Pat, you want to ask any more final questions on this heavy subject before we get into the movie and let Mr. Stone go? No, I think we want to get into his movie, man. I think this has been a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, Sean, I, I loved it. Obviously, uh, well-versed in a lot of different areas. We'd love to have you back and talk some more because it's, it's, uh, there's so much going on right now in the world that we could pick out one subject and talk for hours on it. Well, and you mentioned a little bit ago the NDA, folks, look it up, the National Defense Authorization Authorization Act. Sean didn't say that the people, government's going around assassinating American citizens just to talk shit. This is actually in the law, the NDA. There's been a couple different drafts, but go check yeah. it out for yourself. Do the homework. The movie that this gentleman has out now, P-A-S-S, it is an acronym standing for Paranormal Security Squad. Woo, buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. This one is very interesting. A lot of esoteric symbolism, uh, as we talk about here. What spawned this movie? What's it about? Um, what's the P-A-S-S, my friend? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I can't really take responsibility for creating it. It's definitely the uh, concoction of the writer-director, uh, Alex Wraith. Now, Alex is the guy that I worked with when we did uh, Greystone Park. So he took me there originally, which was um, this haunted mental hospital in New Jersey. Oh, wow. And we did that film together back in 2012, which was uh, based on our experiences journeying into this, this realm, as I call it. It's really like you basically you enter a different realm and you enter the mindscape of, uh, how do you, say, you have to separate in a sense from the physical reality into a mental reality where spirits and, and other things can have an energy and a force and they can affect you and drive you crazy if you're not careful. So that journey of Greystone um, was my first, my first, fe my first foray into feature films, and then Alex wanted to do this, um, basically, is it almost taking our experiences and some of the uh, the funnier elements of our experiences, ghost hunting, and he flipped into this this paranormal activity security squad concept. So basically, it's a group of um, hack, hack uh, home hucksters who are you know selling on um, selling selling people on this idea of being uh, ghostbusters. But it's it's funny because they basically you know they're trying to make money they're they're recording their their adventures they go to people's houses and it's you know it's ridiculous right they're they're trying to they're trying to exercise ghosts by using flashing lights and and uh, you know prayer beads and uh, hallucinatory effects for camera for effect on camera mm -hmm. and really they don't know what they're doing <laughs> they're just doing what they see on TV and so in the process of going to try to exercise people of these of these uh, ghosts and demons. They come across real demons, of course. And when the, when the, one of their their employees gets uh, gets possessed by a demon, they come to me because I'm a sorcerer. And so my sorcerer is like more of a, a rock star Jim Morrison <laughs> than anything. I, I guess that was what I compare the character to. And I, you know, use my sort of sexual magic and whatnot. And I ex and I actually know how to exercise demons and actually fight demons. So we've been together, and we go on missions, and ultimately we we end up at the doorstep of the devil. Uh, who's trying to raise an army of uh, zombies uh, from a different dimension? So it's really far out, very low budget film, but I think for what we you know, a lot of you know campy '80s style effects and visual effects, and uh, you know, just I think a lot of fun. I enjoy watching it. I think it's a great. It's, it's sort of you know, it's one of those like acid. It's like an acid uh, horror movie or something. Yeah, definitely. So, it, yeah, I, see, yeah, hearing you explain like it's in that kind of that spiritual world or like the other dimension that definitely explains so much of the. You know, the camera movements, the visuals. I mean, it's definitely uh, like a surreal, out-of-this-world kind of look. So 
They're very interesting, yeah. folks. If you want to go check it out, go to www.paranormalactivitysecuritysquad.com. It's definitely, definitely worth a watch. Mr. Sean Stone, brother, I know you are on the move to a meeting or whatever you got going on out there. Man, I thank you so much, brother. This has definitely been a bucket list type of conversation. Like Pat said, love to get you back on, bro. You definitely are very well-versed in the goings-on of the world. Beyond huge fan of your pops, man. Tell him, tell him what's up from the old conspiracy farm. And, uh, Pat, yeah. anything else, brother? Yeah. Oh, I loved it. Loved it. Pleasure. No, I mean, love to talk to you sometime when oh. I'm out there in California if you want to come to some fights and Hang out a little bit, and and uh, love to have you as a guest, buddy. That'd be awesome. Let's do it. Let's definitely uh, talk again. It was a pleasure. Enjoyed it. All Great. right, good man. This has been Sean Stone, right. Pat Militant, Jeffrey Wilson, The Conspiracies Farm, sprinkling a little water on The Conspiracies, folks. Stay tuned. We will have more. Thanks again, Sean. Thank you, guys. Take care, bud.